Welcome to another edition of the Spoon Mob Pod, the Chefs and Guests series. Today's podcast, we have Kevin Wang, the chef at Akatsuki. He also did the Sushi Pop in Vaso back in 2018. Akatsuki is kind of the private catering company that he founded a few years back. So he could kind of cook, you know, and and do his own thing with the sushi. He's actually going to be opening a restaurant in Cleveland in the next couple months. Be on the lookout for details as those come out. And I plan on getting him back on the podcast to kind of talk a little bit more about that concept once they've officially opened and, and are kind of running a good clip. The reason I reached out to Kevin, I did the Sushi Pop thing um definitely followed him on instagram for a while too as well uh he hasn't been posting too too much lately but originally we tried to set something up through akatsuki actually kind of over the summer of last year and we were like at the 11th hour and then there started to be supply chain issues with the fish and he goes into it but he actually had to turn down quite a bit of business not even just from necessarily like fears of covid but a lot of it was also because of just lack of supply before his supplier they were bringing in fish like three four times a week and then it went down to one and so he's not like an exclusive with that supplier so the supplier is divvying up whatever they get into to all these different chefs price increases odd man out all that stuff too so we never were able to get that set up it doesn't look like we'll be able to probably do it really anytime soon just because of him opening the restaurant up in cleveland working up there so basically we'll be going up to cleveland getting sushi with him up there once the restaurant opens it's probably a tie between cleveland and detroit for kind of the next uh airbnb staycation just Right now, there's not a whole lot of restaurants open and kind of giving us some time too as well with, you know, Christmas and the New Year's just there's going to be spikes in the coronavirus cases. So want to see those go down a bit, you know, as the vaccine gets distributed more widely and everything too as well. So things will hopefully start to look up as the weather starts to break, but hopefully a little bit sooner than that, even if, you know, like February or something, some of these places start opening back up. That'd be really cool just to just to kind of experience those but i think cleveland and detroit probably the two most logical next places where you know might stay in an airbnb for a handful of days and eat at four or five different restaurants than the the food scene louisville's you know also a potential too but yeah kevin goes into you know we spend almost an hour and a half and nearly like an hour and 20 minutes talk about a whole wide range of things just you know, how he got into the industry, why he became a chef, how he fell in love with sushi, interviewing at different sushi restaurants in like New York and Columbus and stuff, a whole bunch of difference, just everything. Anything you can think of, we cover a lot of it. There is stuff that we didn't get to, just we were kind of running out of time. So he, like I said, do plan on getting him back on the podcast. Got, you know, more stuff kind of want to cover with him. And then also the new restaurant, I want to get into that too, once all those details come out. Yeah, I'll stop talking, let you guys listen to the interview. We did it over Zoom. I'm really happy with how it came out. Give it a listen. All right. Well, thanks for doing this. Appreciate you making some time and, and coming on the podcast here. No, thanks well, for having me. Yeah. One of the reasons I want to have you on, I mean, I know we've you know kind of talked in the past and we were working on setting something up, kind of ran into some supply chain issues with mm-hmm. coronavirus and everything. So definitely still want to get together at some point in the future once all that you know gets resolved and everything. But Absolutely. in the meantime, you know, to have different people in the industry on the podcast and everything felt to be a good time to, to get you on before stuff kind of starts ramping up for you again. So mm-hmm. the first kind of thing that I wanted to touch on, you know, there's not a whole lot of information on a lot of chefs in Columbus, just kind of lacking of general food media, a couple different outlets, but 
nothing super consistent. So kind of wanted to go into your career thus far. You're from Wadsworth originally, correct? Correct. So that's uh, near the Akron area. So um, what- yeah. So I moved, I moved to Wadsworth first time when I was in fourth grade for okay. half a year. Uh, I was going to Sacred Heart Middle School in Wadsworth over there. Uh, ended up having to go back to Taiwan because my father couldn't come out because he was in the Air Force. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So during that time, he wasn't allowed to come out. Uh, they worry about spy issues, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah military personnel, uh, I guess, have some kind of difficulties coming out during that time. Yeah, I mean, it depends on, I guess, probably what the year. But I know, depending on sometimes with military personnel or former military personnel, just because I kind of work in in the industry a bit, mm-hmm. um, depends on like foreign contacts. And usually, at least as of right now, mm-hmm. without getting too far into it, Taiwan, it's usually, if you have any known associates that are within China, essentially, mm-hmm. so it's kind of one of our big adversaries. So sometimes, but I mean, this sure. was years ago, so who knows? Mm-hmm. So you're originally from Taiwan then, right? Correct. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think I came to America the first time it was 89 or 1990. Oh, but okay. then, yeah, I had to go back because the previous statement. But then I came back for good in eighth grade in 1994, Christmas Eve. And then you kind of grew up in Wadsworth. and Yeah, so, so I spent about four to five years in Wadsworth going to high school there. Uh, once graduated high school, I came to Columbus uh, when I was 18, 19 for about a year or two just to get the feel of the city and, and stuff like that because, you know, I, my family were originally from Taipei, which is a bigger city. And Wadsworth was... Uh, it was nice. It was quiet, but um, it wasn't what I was used to. Uh, after I came to Columbus, I realized that, you know, uh, if I'm staying in Wadsworth, uh, Columbus is where I want to be. But then I went back to Akron area. I actually lived in Cleveland for a couple of years, uh, went to school in ITT, which is funny because they have this whole scheme going on right now <laughs> for the last couple of years. But uh, anyways, I graduated with uh, computer animation and game art and design. And came back down to Columbus in 2004, decided to come down here because my sister was down here at a time. Yeah, I decided to move back down here to work, to save up some money to go out west because that's where all the computer stuff is at anyways. But then uh, once, you know, I've always been in restaurant industry since I was 14, pretty much when I moved here to the United States the second time. I worked at my aunt and uncle's restaurant, washing dishes. I don't know if I should say this, but back in the days, you know, I was getting paid 10 bucks a day. <laughs> so, but, you know, family labor is always the best labor. So, right, right, right. Yeah, especially for a 14-year-old kid. It, it took me a whole week to save up enough money to buy my first Super Nintendo game. So <laughs> I, I still have that photo, and that was a pretty proud moment in my life. <laughs> what game was it? What game did you buy? Uh, Killer Instinct. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, back when it first came out. So I came down here. So I, I look for jobs in restaurant industries because, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I've always been dealing with. I've always liked cooking and always liked the kitchen environment since I was in high school. I uh, kind of want to start learning cooking back in high school when I used to watch the old Food TV Network you know, when Emerald was a nobody that has a time slot at 1130 at night. 
Okay. And yeah, he looks super, super young. And I always just watch his show and, you know, Yang can cook. If Yang can cook, so can you. I don't know if you remember that show. Yeah, I do. It's been so long. Me and a friend were kind of talking about Emerald because he had a, like a little mini series come out on Amazon. But right. Like when he was at the height of, I mean, I don't even remember if it was the Food Network or if he was on like the cooking channel, but when it was like mm-hmm. Emerald Live, like it was people would, that was like yeah, before yeah. TiVo, before DVRs. And yep, it yep, was like a yeah. point viewing for a while. Yeah, I watched him before Emerald Life. Like I said, when he was a nobody and his time slot was really crappy. When he got into Emerald Life, that's when I actually kind of stopped because I, I felt like it was too much of a show instead yeah. of just focus on cooking. I mean, I always liked his personality, but I think Emerald Life kind of just kind of put a magnifying glass on top of that and kind of exploded, you know, uh, for, for people. To, to, for, it's better for viewing purposes. Yeah, for sure, know? definitely. Yeah, 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 which I completely understand. Italian cooking was the one of the very first uh, I learned how to start cooking. Uh, and then I started, you know, follow my mom around the house, the way she cooks. I learned a little bit here and there and stuff like that. Uh, when I came down here, like I said, I got a job back in, you know, restaurant industry and I've always been in kitchen. And we opened up Typhoon back in 2005 where uh, I think uh, BBR is right now. Okay. Shore North. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shore North Park Street area. Yep. Right. So that used to be Typhoon Asian Bistro and I was working in the kitchen at the time, but they also had a sushi bar. And after that sushi chef left and I left there, uh, the sushi chef ended up purchasing Sushi Co., which still exists to this day, but Mm -hmm. different owner now. Uh, Sushi Co. is in Crosswoods. One of my good friends actually owns it now, so everybody can go check him out. He ended up purchasing Sushi Co. And then he asked me if I wanted to learn sushi at the time. And at the time, granted, I grew up in Asia. The first memory I have for sushi was on, you know, uh, it was like top floor of this really high building. It was real, this really nice restaurant. You can see all around the rest, you know, from the out, uh, from inside, you can see yeah, the whole city. Uh, mm-hmm. but they had sashimi where, you know, Asia didn't really, we weren't really interested in like rolls and stuff like that. So it was more. No, that's focused. an American thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember t- eating sashimi when I was maybe like six or eight. And I, I, I remember spitting it back out immediately <laughs> because my palate wasn't developed yet. And I just, I, it wasn't something that I was used to. And plus I was a kid, so I was picky. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, like I came back th- when I moved back into Columbus and I started, you know, eating sushi here and there and stuff like that. And I, I fell in love with it and I had the chance to learn the craft. And during that time, I was either, I was thinking either to learn sushi or hibachi. What led me towards sushi is, it might sound, you know, shallow, but during that time, I was really tired of uh, the smoke and the grease that's in in kitchen. Mm-hmm. And my whole closet would smell like fryer oil. Uh, and it's just something that you can't get out. You can't you can get it out, you know? Yeah, right. Um, so, you know, I, and I always thought like, oh, sushi chefs always have it easy. You know, they're out in the air conditioning room talking to cute girls and, you know, talking to all the servers. Whereas the kitchen guys are just back there slaving away and, you know, sweating. So during that time, I was like, well, you know, I kind of want to do sushi then. You know, I want to try, I want to look cool too, you know? Uh, But then once I start touching sushi, you know, like I, 
I kind of fell in love with it to the point that, you know, I decide, I realized that what I went to school for was a waste. You know, as soon as I touched sushi, it's the simplicity of sushi and the ideas of sushi that kind of, kind of kept me in this field as far as long as it has. Being a sushi chef in Japan, there's always, mm-hmm. you know, the talk about it takes you basically apprentice for, th- it's like at least three years before you even touch the rice. Correct. And then another couple years before they even let you start like doing anything with the fish. Correct. You didn't have to go through any of that because, I mean, you essentially got into sushi here in America where that that's just not the case with the restaurants, right? Right, right, right. I mean, I, I really, I always had an appreciation for that kind of training. And I can get back into that a little bit when we talked about my last teacher, Mr. Hong. Um, he trained me very military style and very old school way. Uh, so, you know, I think it, it was on par with most of the Japanese training style. Is okay. that, you know, they, they really want to see if you're serious about the craft, because it is something that that will take a lot out of you physically and mentally. And also uh, they want to see if you're serious. You know, they don't want to waste their time, nor they don't want to waste your time either. Yeah. yeah um, sure. So, but anyways, um, yeah. So I was lucky enough to really just kind of jump into it and start learning sushi while I was getting paid for it, which was, you know, almost not heard of back in the days. Whereas traditionally you would be, if you're training to be a sushi chef, you'd be in the kitchen for, you know, like you said, two to three years, just cutting vegetables, you know, uh, cutting green onions is one of the skills that, you know, like that's your knife control and that's your cuts and that's your knife work. And that's one of the things that many sushi chefs gets trained on first, Mm -hmm. you know, and also the basic uh, technique called katsuramuki, which is, you know, what you see like cucumber wraps. Right. You know, uh, that type of knife skill is, you know, Japanese kitchen 101 almost. So you get into, you know, you fall in love with sushi. And then from there, you kind of bounce all over the place, right? Like you work in different places in Columbus. You Absolutely. eventually go up to Cleveland too, I think, for a little while, right? Yes, I did. There was a period of the time that I didn't really do sushi. I kind of started to do serving and do front of the house. Uh, Because during that time, I realized that at some point in my life, I would like to have my own restaurant. And yeah, yeah, knowing back of the house, everything on back of the house is great. But I felt I didn't have the the front of the house training just of yet. So at Sushi N, where I worked, uh, the owners, Mr. and Mrs. Bay, were really, really nice to me. They treated me like their own son. Uh, I was serving for them for four years, assistant managing for two, and general managing for one over there and the other one year at uh, Cogens back in the days in Powell. You know, like I I decided that that I really, really want to do front of the house stuff during that time because I was kind of tired of, I I don't know how to say it, because it it seems like servers make pretty decent money, right? Uh, Yeah, because there's a lot of states that have the law where they can't, like, because of tips, can't go to the kitchen staff and everything, which is BS, but it, it really messes with stuff. Like they're having problems in California. Oh, really? Because they raise the minimum wage, Mm -hmm. but they still can't do, you know, the tip disbursement across, you know, both front and back of the house. So now it's like an even greater disparity where they thought by raising the minimum wage, it will kind of, you know, help everybody. But now it's Mm -hmm. such a drastic difference, you know, 
before the pandemic and everything, we're kind of starting right. to figure out how do we operate, you know, do we just raise the rates for the kitchen staff? Then everybody in the front is dependent upon tips again. And it's mm-hmm. kind of a mm-hmm. weird balance. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's also, there's many different ways. Cause you know, if we go to bigger cities such as New York, I, I'm sure you've experienced this yourself too. When you go to nicer restaurants or especially sushi bars, on their menu, it will even say they take like an X percentage gratuity, and that's to keep the sushi chefs happy and keep them working hard and stuff like that. Uh, I know that they do that, but I didn't know that what the laws are around that kind of stuff. Yeah, each state's different, but yeah, I mean that's definitely the way to go with the whole like the like the talk prepay system. Is mm-hmm. it's from at least from like a guest perspective, it's just so much, I don't know, nicer. It's just, you're already good going in. Like all you have to do is pay for drinks or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you do like a pairing that's included. And then, sure. and then when you're, when you're done, you're done and you leave and it, and everybody's, you know, they, they usually put the gratuity already built into what you right. paid and, and everybody's like taken care of and everybody's good. And mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to worry about, you know, somebody shorting you or, or whatever. Right. So when you go up to uh, Cleveland, what what kind of took you up there? Why'd you decide to go up to Cleveland for a bit? Back in the days, uh, I I've met uh, Chris Crater from long time ago. Uh, him and my ex brother in law were pretty good friends, and so we we all actually went to the first year of Bonnaroo together. Yeah, uh, we went there on um, business because uh, my ex-brother-in-law, he used to own Higher Ground in, on OSU campus. So we went there to sell, you know, uh, you know, it just, you know, pipes and stuff like that. But uh, that's that's not relevant. Uh, but once we, we met, uh, we kind of turned into friends. And then he opened up Harvest. And my sister was working there at the time. And my sister ended up having a party at her house in German Village. And I was doing sushi for her for her party. And Chris was there at the time. And Chris asked me, was like, hey, you know, like, you know, I didn't know you're doing this. Uh, Are you interested in doing something together in the future? And of course, you know, at 27, 28, I was very eager to do so. You know, um, so I told him, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, like, it, obviously, all these things take time. So we, 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 we talked every so often every year. And then when, it, when the time finally came, he told me that, you know, hey, we're opening it up Salt and Pine. You know, we got all these chefs coming in. I kind of want that to be your stage and your platform to let the Columbus people know you a little bit. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Sign me up. It's and so I, crazy that that didn't like last longer, Salt and Pine. The amount of like chefs that are still, everybody was kind of like a, I feel like everybody who's like a, in that kitchen is basically running their own restaurant now. Like it's. Yeah. Yeah. It everybody has work. their own it thing going really on. Really makes you know? sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, like, yeah, I'm not going to bad mouth anybody here. So, you know, it's just ultimately the direction of the company and the way they ran things did not align with what most of the chefs were there, what they had in mind. With that being said, that's why, you know, Andrew left at first and then I left eventually. And then that it just kind of came crumbling down after that. Uh, The bad thing was, is that, you know, like I was really happy for the opportunity and which I thank Chris for too during our last meeting was that, you know, no matter what happened during the year that I was working with you, you know, um, what you said to me at the beginning was very, you know, stuck in my head. It was kind of, I was kind of offended by the statement, but the more I think about it, the more I, I, I can make sense of it is that, you know, I should be thankful to have a spot here to do my kind, to do the food that I 
I want to do and give it to the public in, mm-hmm. in Columbus. I thank them for the opportunity. And because of Salt and Pine, I've met great people, you know, Josiah, right. you know, Andrew, Silas. Yeah, everybody there. So, you know, I still talk to every single one of them almost on a weekly basis. That's so, good. yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, though, these are really talented, really talented and really driven chefs. And that wants to bring, that wants to elevate the food scene in Columbus for everybody, you know. And yeah. whether it was well received or not, it, I, I don't, I mean, it matters. But to us as chefs, is that, you know, Chris really gave us a platform for us to do what we wanted to do. And the way we want to do it, and you know, at the end of the day, I, I have I, I have nothing but good things to say about that. So then you go back to Cleveland. Um, so when I was in Salem Pine, I think it was a recruiter or somebody. Yeah, it was somebody that I used to work with. He had an interview there, and then he called me and told me about the position because the, he told me that well, you know these guys are trying to open a open a steakhouse slash sushi bar sort of deal. You know, uh, and I told them about you, so you'll probably hear from them soon. I spoke with a owner there, and you know, I was in Columbus to talk about the job opportunities and stuff like that. So ultimately, you know, um, the place is called Marble Room. What it was is just, you know, it's a really high end steak restaurant. Uh, they wanted to add it in raw bar and sushi bar for okay. for the space. And it used to be an old bank. So, I mean, the whole building interior is all marbles. So, there, hence the marble room. Right, yeah. Um, so, I went up there, kind of lifted my roots, which is something that I didn't really want to do. Because, like I said, if I want to stay anywhere in Ohio, it would be in Columbus. But I decided that it was a good opportunity. And so, my wife and I picked up everything and we kind of just moved up there. And once I was up there, we kind of, because they have another project that they're also working on because they just recently during that time purchased the key tower in Cleveland. So they wanted to add in a carry out sushi place in the lobby room, in the lobby area in key tower. Okay. So I had to oversee that as well. And while working on the marble room concept. So once I set up like all the equipment list and concerns for different type of equipments and stuff like that, and to see to to kind of like organize things for them to just so we can execute smoother, they decided to do a tasting because they just got in a new general manager from Dubai. Uh, he was recently in Dubai for the last couple of years running a place. Um, so I just I just made the menu item which everybody agreed upon previously. And I didn't know it because that was the very first time that I had to do a quote unquote tasting interview. Um, whereas, you know, like most chefs nowadays, you go for an interview if you're looking for high end positions, you know, they pretty much just tell you to go in the kitchen and give you like 30 minutes to, to create a dish. Right yeah. to make something, and then you come out. Everybody taste it. Uh, I never really had to do that ever in my life because uh, I've always worked for mom and pop shops, and they just, you know, especially with sushi, it's kind of just like, well, if you know what you're doing, you know what you're doing. Yeah, it's uh, pretty. I would imagine it's pretty easy to tell with sushi where yeah, yeah, to like stage for like two days or anything. Right, right. So, um, but during that time, even the head chef over there during that time, his name was Alberto. He actually he's not there anymore. He moved back to New Jersey. Um, he told me that you know like you, you got you got to wow these people you got to wow these people which you know kind of took me by surprise because i didn't know that was what i needed to do and so i was just making them menu items uh so with that being said that didn't really go very well uh the gm ultimately just told me that you know we don't really need you anymore uh after we move up there the head chef was 
pretty much almost in tears when we were all talking and because he felt really bad that me and my wife, you know, picked up everything and moved up here. And then now you guys are after, and then after I do everything for you guys and you, and they're telling me that, you know, right. we don't need you anymore. So, you know, that, that, that one year when I was up in Cleveland, because of that kind of, it, it hit me really hard. Uh, I never really had that kind of letdown ever in my professional life. So, you know, it made me really start thinking what I really need to do in my career, you know, uh, right. with experiences that I've had with, you know, bad owners and bad bosses. And then, you know, the industry, the way people that would treat the people that are in the industry. It, it, even in, at Salt and Pine, you know, I was kind of had this idea to create this concept called, we were, I was going to call it Rogue because ultimately the concept was to gather all these, you know, chefs that, you know, have dreams. We, we all have dreams and we all want to do our own things, but most of the chefs are living paycheck to paycheck because yeah. the pay is so low. And most of us have families that have to, we have to take care of too. So it is very, very hard for any chefs to really just say, hey, I'm going to do a pop-up. Uh, it'll probably cost me, you know, 500 to a thousand dollars, including space. Uh, it's hard for us to come up with that type of money, just that type of cash, right. you know, for most of us. Uh, so what I really wanted to do is to have a small restaurant and I want to incubate the Columbus chefs. I want to bring all the chefs that has ideas, that wants to do stuff, that wants to do pop-ups. Ultimately, they're just, they can use the space for free, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I want to, you know, like, it still be a sushi restaurant six days out of the week. But, you know, on that one day, there'll be a guest chef, you know? And I really want to create this food scene for the city of Columbus because... I think at the time when I was at Salt and Pine, that's when I really realized that, you know, the cooking world is it's so much bigger out there. And I've learned so many different techniques from everybody there that I incorporated into my sushi uh, dishes, you know, right. and that, that and that's what I've been trying to do is utilizing new age techniques uh, and cross utilizing with, you know, authentic techniques to make the best food there is. So is that you a know? concept that you still want to move forward with? <laughs> that is definitely still a concept that I still want to move forward. Uh, I mean, it doesn't end there, you know, like I want to have agriculture. I want to have farms in Columbus. I want to, you know, raise our own cattle, raise our own things and grow our own produce and do all this stuff. Right. Maybe help out like, you know, after school programs and stuff like that. You know, just to get people off the streets and get something that they can find passionate, you know, um, yeah. ultimately, you know, like cooking and making food really is what saved me and really what made me keep pushing forward and going when I when I feel like I, I couldn't do it anymore. Based on your time in Cleveland, would you say that, I guess, they were more, compared to Columbus, do you think mm -hmm. more or open to or appreciative sushi versus Columbus? Which market do you think receives sushi better? Because, I, I mean, I, I, there's not much, you know, we'll get into it here in a little bit, but mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, the food scene in Columbus, mm -hmm. especially with sushi and everything, you know, you really have to go to, Chicago, you know, to kind right. of find that, you know, even though it's probably a bit more of a higher end experience because, you know, they're flying ingredients in and stuff Correct. like that. But Correct. I mean, in terms of kind of the Midwest, it's just unless you get lucky with, I forget his name off the top of my head, but he had the, the restaurant in Dublin 
for a while because of the Honda plant, you know, and he closed it because he retired and everything. But like, that's just how Columbus got lucky with Kihachi? Like, having. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so the weird thing I found out is that, you know, Columbus population is about three times the size of Cleveland, I believe. Getting further. Uh, further yeah, of course. Columbus is, I mean, within the last five, 10 years, it, it, it blew up like crazy. With a population three times the size of Cleveland, uh, when I was down here doing salt and pine, my first master, Noma, Taishi Noma, uh, he ended up moving to Cleveland and he called me, I think, three, four times the first year to tell me to go up there and work with him. So he's this old school, traditional Japanese guy. The first time I met him, I thought he was in the Yakuza because <laughs> uh, it was his day off and he came in with, you know, his white pants and, you know, his shirt, his button up polo shirt. And he has a shaved head, obviously. And he just looked very, very intimidating to me, you know. Um, and he kind of just looked looked at me like wondering, oh, who's this kid, you know. Um, but I didn't know he was the head chef there at the time. Uh, he was only working part time. And at, later I asked him, why do you only work? you know, hourly, he said that because they can't afford him full time. So okay. <laughs> one way or the other, the first time I, you know, like he called me a few times and they opened up a place called Ginkgo in, uh, where's that place called? I forgot what that place is called, but it's in Cleveland. Uh, it's in like a more hipster area ish type of place. Uh, it's right next. It's actually right across the street from, um, Lola's, I think. Oh, so Tremont. Yeah. Tremont, Tremont, Tremont. Yeah. 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 So Dante is the owner of the restaurant, and he also owned an Italian restaurant on the first floor, whereas Ginkgo was kind of in the basement. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of a cool feel. Um, I remember going in there the first time with me and my wife. Now, uh, we were dating at the time, and we went up there for Valentine's Day, and Noma-san really took care of us. And we, you know, I, I, I've always enjoyed working with him. And I, there's one thing that I remember the most is what he told me at the very beginning after we worked together for about six months. You know, you see these sushi chefs that stay at one place forever, right? Do you think it's good? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I think the owners like that kind of stuff, you know, loyalty and, you know, stability and stuff like that. He's like, yeah, but as a chef, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. And I was like, oh, why? You know, because I, I, I would think, you know, especially with Japanese people, they're really focused on loyalty and, you know, they're, they're focused on stability and just work ethics. Right. But the way he told me was that, you know, as a chef that's learning the skills and the trade. You know, you go to one sushi restaurant, especially sushi restaurant, sushi, as a sushi chef, you when you go into restaurant A, you have your head chef A, right? And you learn everything from the head chef A. But what's going to happen is that at a certain point, you're going to learn everything that he has to offer you, right? Yeah, all the so, secrets and tips. Yeah, and- yeah. So, and the way he put it is that what I would suggest you do, and which is what I do, is that I go to different places that I learn different different operation styles, different techniques, and different ways of doing things. And after X amount of years or so, you will find your own style and you will find your own way of doing things because you already know so many different ways of doing it. Right. And that kind of stuck with me for a even till now. And Noma-san really taught me everything as far as sushi bar etiquette goes. Whereas skill-wise, he didn't teach me a lick. Uh, every time he's doing something, he's very secretive. Um, he's always in the back kitchen while I'm working up front. And if I go back to the kitchen, he'll like put his whole body blocking the process. <laughs> 
you know, um, so he doesn't want me to watch. He doesn't want me to see. Uh, I, I personally feel like he probably thinks I, I wasn't ready yet. So, you know, like, I, but that never really offend me in any, any way possible. I remember like the first time he talked to me and even showed me anything, I almost cried because the first two weeks we worked together, he didn't really say a word to me. He was probably just just kind of like feeling me out and see if I'm serious about anything, you know? Um, but I was, I think it was one day I was cleaning shrimp, uh, cooked shrimp, Abby, and he walked by, he came into work and he looked at it and he was like, why are you doing it that way? I was like, I don't don't know. Nobody ever showed me any other way. You know, this is the only way I know. Yeah. And he said, okay, I'll show you. And I mean, I I was tearing up at that. I was getting choked up, but I didn't want to cry in front of a 60 year old Japanese man. So, (laughs) so I had to swallow that pretty hard. Uh, but I was very, 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 very happy. Uh, it, it, it almost felt like one of those scenes in, you know, in, in the animes that you see, right? Like right. When, the, when the master finally acknowledges the student sort of deal. Uh, but yeah, so he taught me a lot of things such as, you know, when he asked for Aniki tuna, for example. Uh, I remember the first time I was like, I don't know what that is. And he said, Aniki. I was like, I don't know what that is. He said, you don't know what Aniki means. I was like, no. And he said, and you call yourself a sushi chef? I was like, well, no, I'm not, but I'm learning, you know? He was like, okay, well, in in Japanese, Aniki means older brother, whereas Ototo means younger brother, right? Okay. Uh, so when at a sushi bar in a restaurant setting, especially sushi bar, your guests are in front of you. Right. You never say, hand me the older tuna because that just sounds bad in front of the guest. Yeah, so, yeah it makes them think that it, like it's bad. Yeah, so you call it the older brother tuna. Whereas the fresh, the ones that just came in today or earlier will be the Ototo tuna. Okay. You know, uh, and he also taught me the simple fact of sushi chefs opening cooler doors. You should just use your pinky, never use any other fingers because... As far as sushi chef goes, we don't use our pinky ever because pinkies are never touching the food, no matter what kind of techniques you're using and no matter how you're cutting things. Uh, so when you're grabbing cooler stuff, uh, you want to use the finger that you don't touch the food with. Interesting. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So then that's one of the things I, I, I held it to my heart too. And also that, you know, how do you tell if a sushi chef is any good as soon as you sit down before you even see anything or taste anything? And what he told me was that you just look at their floors. That's it. Hmm, yeah. You, you look at their work area. If their floor is clean and spotless, these guys are good. If they're dirty and messy, then you don't want to eat that. Struggling. <laughs> yeah. So then that's why, like, I, I you know, ever since that day, uh, I have a problem every time I see most chefs just kind of like brush off the crumbs and stuff off of their cutting board to the floor. Usually when kitchen do well, this is what usually happens in kitchen. A lot of times people will just like clean off the tabletop, you know, and brush it off to the floor and sweep up later. Right. As me and how I train people now is that, you know, you have a trash can right there. Why can't you just, you know, wipe everything the thing into your hand and then throw it away? It would be easier that way. You don't have to walk around in trash all day. Yeah. You're up in Cleveland for a while. Then you wind up coming back to Columbus mm-hmm. and, you know, from there, you basically start this, you know, private catering venture. Mm-hmm. What, was, what was your reason behind going that route? Was it just you were kind of tired of the restaurant scene and, and um, yeah, wanted yeah, to really kind do of. what you wanted to do? Yeah. So uh, the reason I came back to Columbus was obviously, A, this is the city where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And B is that when I was uh, working with Marble Room, what they told me to look at is uh, Jeff Ruby Steakhouse. 
because okay. they 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 yeah. want to the copy yeah they want to kind of like copy that style of cause of dining experience and when I came down here when I was still living up there and I came down here for some reason I forgot I think I was looking at locations or something like that mm-hmm. uh, I heard it on uh, the radio that Jeff Ruby is looking for is hiring in Columbus. And mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of like Gassen or meant to be. So because I felt like if I can nail what you, if I can get a job with a company that you guys are trying to copy, then at least that proves to myself that I, I, I am, I do deserve to be in this business. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah. And maybe it's just a hiccup. Maybe I just didn't try hard enough or whatever. So I ended up going up, you know, call up Jeff Ruby and then spoke with Andrew, which was the sushi executive during that time. And he told me that they want an uh, interview. Ultimately, it's just me making dishes and making food. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm going to crush it this time, right? Because the last time I just kind of, I held back a lot. And this time I was like, well, uh, what about all the cost and stuff? And he was like, well, you can utilize anything we have in store, uh, but anything you want, we can just get in and we'll just pay for it. And I was like, well, okay, um, the way I handle fish is probably very different from how everybody else handle fish. So for me personally, I would just get the whole fish in, such as salmon. And as far as tuna goes, I want to get a loin in instead of like using your guys' saku blocks, you know, and stuff like that. Because the cuts and the way you trim things, um, the way you portion, it, it all matters, right, when it comes down to the end of it. Right. So he was like, okay. So uh, I think we ended up spending like $700, for that interview. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Because I was getting, you know, fresh wasabi roux. I was getting Toro in. I was getting all kinds of crazy things in. That's not that's not a normal, like, is that a normal thing for a sushi chef then? Like if they're going to no. do an interview at a place to, that they would have to bring their own ingredients for the audition or? Um, no. So I had a, while I was working with Nomasan in Asian Gourmet in Gahe, Hannah, um, there was a server there. His name was Jordan. Jordan, and he was going to uh, culinary school during the time, and we became pretty good friends. Uh, after he graduated, he actually moved out of New York and started learning sushi. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he's doing really well right now. He actually just recently moved to Atlanta and opened up uh, to go sushi concept. Okay, uh, but they are opening their brick and mortar. I want to say spring of 2021. Uh, but anyways, he always tried to call me. He always called me every single time that there's an opportunity there. Um, he wanted to get me into Ginza Onedara, which is a three Michelin star sushi bar in New York. And yeah, I think they have, yeah. The yeah, they have multiple Hawaii, locations yep. around the world, right? Yeah. Um, and also, uh, they he also called me up to go stage at Shuko in Manhattan. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, during that time, I, I did go up to Shuko and stash for one day, one whole day. Uh, mm-hmm. So we got in there around 11 a.m., 10 a.m. And then I got out there at about 10 p.m. So uh, what I had to do was just really watch how everybody worked for that day and see the flow of service. And at the end of the night, uh, the owners just had me... Uh, Jimmy was the only, only one there during that time. He just had me make... Five nigiris, and that's it. No, oh, okay. Yeah, and that that was all it was, and then because they this was like summertime, I want to say last year. Yeah, it was it was close. It was before summer. It was like spring, and then uh, they wanted to because they have a place up in Hamptons, and uh, they want to open a sushi bar there for like every single day instead of just the weekends. So they yeah. needed a sushi chef over there to handle things. 
Okay. And they wanted to hire me there, but they also wanted me to work at Shuko on my days off or on my time off. But I asked uh, my buddy then, I was like, well, then where am I going to sleep? You know, if I'm working in Manhattan. Yeah. And, and my, you have to go to my, the Hamptons like three days. Yeah. Ago. And he was like, well, you can you can crash on my futons. I was like, dude, man, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I can't be crashing on futons anymore. Yeah. It's if fast, I, if fast, I'm your right. age, it's a different story. You right. Know? Yeah. 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 So he was like, yeah, I understand. It's okay. So how, when you were doing your, you know, these different interviews, especially with Shuko, mm-hmm. you know, are you, how big a, is there a language barrier with, you know, Japanese versus, are because you're not fluent in Japanese, right? Uh, no, I'm not. So is, did you find that there was a big language barrier or is it most of chefs, you know, pretty um, much? No, the, I mean, as far where, as Shuko goes, the two owners, the two chef owners that are working there, one is Korean, one's Chinese. Okay. Um, so it doesn't yeah, Jimmy, yeah, yeah, Jimmy's Korean. I mean, both of them speak fluent English, so it was completely fine. And I mean, as far as language barrier goes, it's kind of funny because after you work in a restaurant with older Asian people that don't speak English as well as, you know, a younger generation, mm-hmm. you you kind of just know what they're talking about, even if they're just speaking words and not completely and not complete sentences. You know, because yeah, you, you, you can know think about mannerisms and like different, like you know, right, right, right. And that's one thing about chefs is that you know you you don't have to really say anything to each other. It's like in in my interviews nowadays when I interview people to come on board, you know, I I don't really care what it says on your resume, and I don't really care how well you speak and what your experiences are. I just need you to make me a plate, right? I just need you to make me, uh, 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 you know, hosomaki, urumaki, you know, uh, roll with ta- rainbow roll, maybe, you know, two sets of sashimi and four pieces of nigiri, right? And from that is alone, I can just tell how good you are, you know, because talk is cheap, you know? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so you, you go, you do the, the interviews there, you, you know, it doesn't really line up with mm-hmm. kind of where you're at. So you wind up coming back, you know, and you're, you're doing the private catering, yeah. um, which is kind of what you're still doing, right? I mean, obviously, coronavirus yep. put on hold. Yep. And then you were supposed to, I think, and, and I don't know if it fell through or not, but you were supposed to run a sushi bar, I think. Was it, wasn't it in the Moxie Hotel? Yeah, yeah. So it was... Um, so I ended up getting a job with this com- with a town hall company. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Mandrake is the rooftop restaurant that they're going to be opening. And ultimately, you know, they wanted me to run that restaurant and per- potentially expand later on. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, that everything kind of got put on hold, obviously, due to coronavirus and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think it was about September or something like that. Um, after not hearing from them for a few months, and that it was about like six months, yeah. um, that the owner, Bobby, you know, he actually called me up and was telling me that he has a project for me and my apprentice. Daniel. So both of us went up there and I kind of want to use the opportunity to really ask them, you know, what your guys' plans are and how you guys are dealing with all these employees that you supposedly have for Columbus locations, but not utilizing and not paying them. And like, what do you want us to do sort of deal? Yeah. So ultimately, you know, we went up there. He wanted to create a sushi concept within Town Hall in Cleveland. And because of Town Hall's dietary restrictions, uh, they focus on non-GMO, all-organic, that kind of stuff, which made my food not taste pretty much not the same and not exactly how I wanted. And so after I worked with him for about two, three weeks, 
you know, in Cleveland, I told them that, you know, hey, like, this is not for me and I'm not going to be here forever. Because uh, right. ultimately, I'm, I'm supposed to just be here training some people to do sushi, but because I'm not your sushi chef here. You know, I'm your sushi chef in Columbus. But ultimately, we, we parted ways because I just told them that, you know, even when we signed on board, I told them that this is the last company I'll be working with. Uh, if, this doesn't, if this doesn't work out, then I'll just be doing my own things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they understood that. So, you know, like we, we parted ways, you know, uh, mutually and it was fine. You know, there were no animosity or hard feelings on either end. Um, But yeah, so as of right now, I am still working on something. Unfortunately, that something is going to require me to be in Cleveland for the first part of it, which is going to be a year and a year or two years. However, um, it, it is still my goal to bring the concept back to Columbus, if not create a whole new concept in Columbus. Because, okay. I mean, I can guarantee, I can tell you that, you know, my, my dream restaurant really is just a 10 seat sushi bar, right? Uh, right it's yeah. just me and then the one other person and our kitchen equipment's behind us. It's just something really small, really quaint. And, but at that time, at, at, with that being said, I don't really want to worry about whether or not if it's making money, as long as I can pay the bills, that's all I care about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, I, like I said, I really, I think I will die behind a cutting board. Uh, and I, I think that's why I want to die anyways, is with a knife in my hand. Uh, but um, I, I, I just want to do this for the rest of my life. And I really just want to keep making sushi forever. Uh, but for me not to worry, not have to worry about income and sales and stuff like that to, to really live my dream restaurant, which is what my first boss, uh, Mr. And Mrs. Bay at Sushi Ends told me is that your first business should always be the moneymaker. And mm-hmm. after it doesn't matter if you enjoy doing it or not, just make sure it makes money. And then once that makes starts making money, that can be your umbrella to do whatever it is you want to do Passion later projects on. And all that right, stuff. right, right. So yeah. I'm going to take that into action and create this. Uh, there's not much I can say right now, but I can yeah, definitely yeah. announce it in, uh, in about a month or a month and okay. a half. Yeah, yeah, I spoke with my partners a little bit a couple of days ago about this. He was like, yeah, just let them know. Uh, we'll announce it in about a month and a half. Yeah, yeah look yeah, forward yeah. To, to some details and, and where people can find you. And then hopefully... Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Doing, you know, hopefully you'll be able to do, you know, dine-in kind of right off the mm-hmm. right off the jump. And, mm-hmm. you know, that'll be pretty awesome. Definitely, yeah, absolutely. definitely come up that way uh, since I do have family up there anyways. So. Awesome. But yeah, so, so that's where you're at now. But just kind of, I want to go through just to, you know, kind of circle back around on a couple things. So sure. um, you never went to culinary school, but, you know, you've encountered probably a lot of people that have, I guess, what would your recommendation be for, you know, any younger chef or somebody who wants to get in the profession? Would you recommend they go to culinary school? Or do you feel that the in-kitchen, on-the-job training, you know, because you're kind of self-taught to, you know, to a point, like, do you think that was more beneficial for you or would be more beneficial for, a sh- you know, a younger chef coming up now? I think it, it all really depends on what type of person you are. Mm-hmm. Um, for you to decide to want to be a chef to begin with is that, you know, uh, people, they say people learn different ways, right? One is hands-on and one one can learn by just reading and memorize everything. Uh, whereas me, I'm more of a hands-on person. So if I do it, anything I learn, if as soon as I write it down once, I don't forget so I always write everything down and I learn everything by doing. So um, culinary school is great as far as teaching you the proper techniques 
and most importantly, teach you the organization and food costing and labor costing, that kind of stuff early. Well, whereas me, I had to learn all that later on in life uh, once I get to that position and kind of figure it out on my own or Mm -hmm. kind of question, you know, ask my colleagues for opinions. Uh, However, um, that that piece of paper is really, really nice as well. It gets you into a lot of places, right? Uh, But as far as learning goes, you know, um, I've seen, you know, all kinds of culinary school graduates. I've seen people that really thrive afterwards and really utilize their education. And I've seen people that are super humble, but super badass in the kitchen. I've seen people that are super, you know, egotistic, super ignorant, but but can't do anything in the kitchen. Right. You know, um, I've seen people that graduate a culinary degree at their top top of their class, but can't handle Saturday night service. Right. You know, <laughs> so it, it, it's it's always a lot different what you learn on paper than when you really put it into action. You know, um, I think we all learn at this point at two up twenty twenty is that you know, like all, of all the cooking shows that we watched so far already, is that you know, it doesn't matter what it sounds like, doesn't matter what your menu looks like or whatever it's about your execution right it's about how you execute your your your, your vision and, and and make sure everybody's happy yeah. that's the most important so and that's one thing i always tell my trainees too is that you know yeah it's great that you have all these great ideas but just think about the process of how to assemble this dish when the order comes in you know one one at a time is okay but what if you get 20 and then your 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 ticket board is you know completely stacked what are you going to do then you know, and then, you know, then you really have to start thinking outside the box a little bit and try to figure out how to do this. Because not every restaurant has an avant-garde team, right? Not right. every restaurant yeah. is like Noma has, you know, 20, 30 chefs. That's kind of like a sim- not maybe not that many. They, but they got more than that. I yeah, think. right, right. I, uh, uh, listen, they were saying, I, I think there's like a podcast or something I listened to with uh, somebody who used to work there. And it was like, they had like 70. Oh, wow. It was basically like two people per like... Almost like two people per, you know, kind of court, like, cause they were only doing 15 right, right, right. things, but there was, it was so labor intensive for some of the stuff that they were doing. Like they had like 70 people. There's, right. I mean, it's almost like 15 a, people staging all at once. Like it's insane. Yeah. 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 Like one person putting a leaf on a plate and then pass it down, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wish I can have that in my restaurant too, but you know, I'm, I don't print money for a living, so I can't do that. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> So, and that's one of the things that, you know, I think a lot of the guests really needs to understand is that, you know, when you, when you go to restaurants and dine, you know, yeah, you can get sushi anywhere or you can get, let's say you can get steak anywhere, but it's about, or you can get like tuna tartare anywhere, but it's about the presentation. It's about the labors that's behind all this stuff that's really coming on to your menu price. Right. Yeah. Um, and ingredient, you know, ingredients. Yeah, ingredients. Of I mean, that's course. something that most people don't understand is like mm-hmm. true food costs yep. per ingredients. And like, you know, because people think, well, if, you know, I go to McDonald's, like I can, I can get dinner for under $10. Yeah. Right. But like, that's not exactly food. I can also <laughs> so, eat dirt for free, right. you know, but, and that's probably healthier than McDonald's. But, you know, it's just what you want to eat. You know. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of female, you know, sushi chefs, and a lot of that, mm-hmm. you know, with the Japanese culture, mm-hmm. you know, gender roles, and Japanese society, mm-hmm. work hours, work conditions. There's kind of slowly, I, I guess, there's you know a few more that are coming up. Is that something that you think will probably take off 
here in America first? Like you'll start to kind of see a wave of, of female sushi chefs. Uh, I'm hoping because I, I've told my wife many times about this too. Uh, and I always told my apprentice and people that I work with all the, you know, about this too, every single time is that I really would like to train a female sushi chef. Mm-hmm. If there's a, a sushi restaurant in Columbus, Ohio, that, you know, has a female sushi chef that's not bad looking, you know, <laughs> and uh, that knows exactly what they're doing. I mean, honestly, I will probably either at least twice a week um, because there, it's just it's just something that's not seen right. as a norm. You know, um, I don't know if you ever seen the old uh, the movie Old Boy, the original version. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the daughter in the in the movie, he she was doing sushi, you know, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And after that, ever since that movie, I was like, oh man, I, I want to meet a female sushi chef, you know. And there are definitely female sushi chefs out there right now, and I know there's there's one really famous one out in California, you know. Um, I, I'm hoping that's a that that will become a thing, um, because right. I mean, the, the the biggest thing with sushi chefs really is, you know, it's it's very 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 labor intensive and time time intensive uh you're there at the crack of dawn and you're leaving when you know the sun's almost coming up you know um so ultimately that sushi literally just becomes your life you know whereas you know the the, the whole doc the, the documentary jiro dreams of sushi you know like when he first started and when his son were kids they were they were scared one day because they thought there was a stranger sleeping with mom you know, because they never see Jiro because Jiro's always working. Always working, yeah. Yeah, and you know, that that's no joke. You know, and even more so in Japan where the sushi chef has to wake up, you know, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning to go to fish market to pick up stuff and then go, go back to the restaurant and prep. Whereas here we have the luxury of people delivering it to us. Yeah. You know, um, now don't get me wrong. If I live by the ocean, I would definitely go to the port every single day morning too to to pick out my own stuff too. But with being in Ohio, it's a little bit harder. Did you ever consider going overseas or, or going anywhere else? You know, when you were coming up as a as a chef, or um, just you just always wanted to stay in Ohio? So it, it it might sound cheesy, but it's just you know I've learned everything I learned in Ohio in Columbus. You know, uh, I grew up as a chef and as a person in Columbus, you know, and I mean, yeah, I was in Wadsworth or the North for a few years, but, you know, teenage years, whatever, you know, high school years, it's just for fun. Right. Um, I really learned the, the way of the world or whatever, how, however you want to put it in Columbus, Ohio. And I've met a lot of good people in Columbus, Ohio. So I've always was very determined to stay in Columbus, Ohio. Like I said, if I were to stay in Ohio. Um, however, I did have opportunities to go back to Taiwan to open up restaurants. I decided that wasn't the best move for me just yet, mm-hmm. uh, because during that time I wasn't, as far as skill goes, I wasn't, I wasn't at the same level that I was, that I am now. Uh, after I met Mr. Huang at Sushi, and he taught me pretty much all, a lot of the skills that I have now. And after that, be- becoming a head, head sushi chef, I had to utilize, you know, media sources, you know, YouTube, right. Google's, whatever. So, you know, that's one thing I always tell all the young people that wants to be a chef and wants to learn new things, you know, it, it doesn't matter how bad you want to learn it. You j- just go learn it because nowadays you really have no excuse. You know, yeah. you can, you can learn every, anything that you want just be by watching videos and, and practice. It's all on YouTube. You know? Yeah. And that's all you really need to do. You'd be amazed. Like, you know, like Mr. Huang showed me five different ways to cut salmon. I settled on one. 
And then now I cut salmon one way, I cut smaller fish the other way, you know, I skin fish different ways depending on the fish. And this is all just from practicing and watching videos. Yeah. You know, and you know, it's like what Noma-san said before, once you learn so many ways, you will find your own way. Yeah. You know, and yeah, I still, you know, honestly, my wife and I still haven't gone on our uh, our honeymoon yet, and we've been married for God four four years now. <laughs> so uh, we were supposed to go this year, but this whole thing happened. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna try to go to Japan next summer. Oh, nice. So uh, hopefully, to Tokyo or Kyoto? Uh, so I, I, you know, honestly, I want to go to Tokyo. I want to go to Kyoto, Osaka. I want to go to all these places but uh, she told me just no she said pick one or two places that's it okay because uh, i want to go to different regions and try different types of cu cuisine you know i want to go to i want to go to you know uh, hokkaido to try their seafood and milk i want to go to osaka to try their more americanized the the pancake things oh um i know you're yeah nomoyaki Yep. Yeah. So uh, I want to try that. I want to try so many different things in Japan. I want to try yakitori's in Japan. There is actually a good story in uh, yakitori. It was uh, I was still in Taiwan. I was I think I was like seven or eight. Uh, this yakitori bar opened in Taipei, and my mom decided to take me there, and it was pretty high. Like Japanese food is considered pretty expensive. Yeah. Uh, during that time, and I think it still does. Uh, but we went in there, uh, we order, you know, because it was yakitori, so you just order until you stay, just keep, you can keep ordering until you, you're full. And I think at the end of the meal, my mom told me to sit here for 30 minutes and she was going to be right back. And I asked her why. She said she didn't bring enough cash because I ate too much. So, <laughs> so she was like, either you can start washing dishes or I can go, <laughs> I can go get some cash. Uh, so I just sat there for 30 minutes uh, waiting for my mom to come back to bail me out. Uh, but yeah, like Yakitori Bar is really something that I really want to bring to Columbus as well. Uh, I really want to have a izakaya in Columbus. And I think the Columbus general public really, really embraced that concept. Yeah. I mean, we went to one in in Nashville. It was the mm. first one that they ever had. It's called 210 Jack. And like, I mean, it's, mm. it's, a, it's a popular spot with folks, at least within the industry too, as well on like Sunday, Monday nights. So yeah, their food I looks think, great. I think Columbus, I can definitely, Columbus can definitely uh, support, I think. I, I agree. Zakaya bar. Mm -hmm, I agree. And I know we're kind of pushing on time here a little bit. So mm -hmm. In your opinion, I guess, what's the best, you know, best sushi spot, you know, that's not the one that you're working on in, you know, in Columbus or even in just, you know, Ohio. I mean, there's, you know, a notable place in Cincinnati. I haven't been there to try it, you know. Cleveland. Oh, what's the place in Cincinnati? It's actually technically in Kentucky. Oh, okay. I can't remember the name. I'll find the name. Yeah, know. once you find out, let me know. Maybe I'll go yeah. check it out. Um, but I guess what would you recommend to people looking for, you know, like myself, who are looking for a good sushi spot, you know, in Columbus or, mm -hmm. you know, just Ohio in general? Um, I mean, like I haven't been to every city in Ohio, so I can't really say that there's no good sushi in Ohio. I mean, as far as Columbus goes, you know, a lot of, as you know, it, it's the one thing I always tell pe my customers is that, yeah, I used to believe in authenticity. I used to be believe in traditional uh, techniques and stuff like that. Edomai style sushi, mm -hmm. uh, and I hold I held myself pretty high up there because I didn't. I felt like I didn't want to do California rolls anymore. I I don't want to make you know rainbow rolls anymore. I just want to make real sushi. Yeah. But at the end of the day, is that it's what you, you got to know your audience, right? So at the end of the day, there's. Because people always ask me too, is like, what's the right way of eating this? 
you know, and I always tell them, you know, it, it's your food. You pay for it. You can eat it however you want. You can break it all apart if you like. <laughs> you can, you can, you know, put your wasabi in your soy sauce and put ginger on it if you want. You know, whatever tastes good to you, eat it your way. But traditionally, it's eaten certain way. Right. And, right. I, and I educate them the right way to do so. Uh, however, you know, as far as what sushi restaurants that my wife and I go to, honestly, man, we don't. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's not saying that there's no good sushi I need bars. One. I need I need something, man. I, 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 I can't. Man. I mean, maybe right now I need something. Yeah. I mean, maybe sushi N. if Mr. Huang is working, uh, he should be the head chef if he's still there. But just sit in front of him. You know, um, he knows what he's doing. He taught me a lot of stuff. Uh, and one thing, you know, like there's one, one, one point that I really want to bring up is that, you know, the biggest reason for me to really want to do my private dining and really push towards opening my home place and elevate, uh, the sushi game in Columbus even more so than before mm-hmm. was a restaurant that I went to interview at. I will not name names here. Uh, but I went to interview for the restaurant. I, had I know to. what you're talking. I know what you're talking about because you told me this story. Oh, but did go, you? Go, okay. Go, yeah, go. I'll tell your. I'll I won't tell mention the name too. either. I won't mention. The yeah, name. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, when I went into the interview, they asked me to make a rainbow roll, uh, two nigiris, three pieces of sashimi, uh, you know, hosomaki and urumaki, right? Um, the head chef was there at the time. Rainbow rolls, you need fish for toppings. So I asked the head chef for a piece of it for you know the fish to put on top, and yeah. he handed me you know uh, this thing. Well. They call it Red Snapper, but just just so everybody out there knows, when you go out to Columbus to eat sushi, never, ever, ever order the Red Snapper because it is not Snapper. It is frozen tilapia fillets they're feeding you. Don't eat that. <laughs> you know, that is not Red Snapper. Red Snapper does not cost $2.75 a piece. <laughs> it costs a lot more than that. Uh, but anyways, uh, but so usually when you cut fish, at the end of it, you have a triangular piece. Right. And what sushi chefs usually do, they will kind of butterfly that in half and then so you can lay it on top of a roll easier. Uh, whereas the chef kind of just look at the fish, put it on the cutting board and pound his fist onto it and made it flat. Right then, I knew I didn't want to work there. Uh, it doesn't matter how much they were paying me. I just don't want to work in a, area, a, a spot that doesn't appreciate and respect their ingredients like that. Yeah, you know, and taking um, shortcuts. And- right. So after after I did that, you know, I spoke with the owner and they were like, oh, do you have any questions or stuff like that? And I was like, yeah, I actually just have one question, which has been bothering me. He was like, okay, well, what's up? And I was like, yeah, so I know you guys that you guys were originally from New York and all you guys came from New York. I was just really surprised because, you know, um, New York seems to be like the food hub. You know, there, there's so many good sushi restaurants in New York. So for any aspiring chef or aspiring sushi restaurant owner, I would think you want to be established in a city that's known for their sushi, you know, as, 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 as far as America goes. And what he told me ultimately just kind of rubbed me the wrong way very much so is that, you know, oh, the New York standards were too high. So that's why we decided to come to Columbus. So what that meant to me is that you think Columbus uh, eaters do not have standards as far as sushi goes. Right. And you think Columbus people are just country folks and don't know any better and you can just sell them whatever you want and call it sushi, which is everything that I was that I've been working against for the last 
five years, yeah. you know? So once he said that, you know, I told him, I was like, okay, well, thank you for the opportunity, but I don't think I'll be working here, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's when I really pushed and pushed forward to open up my Akatsuki Sushi private dining experience. Are you still doing the private dining stuff too? Even uh, yes, I am. Yes, I am. I, just so people I, I, know. Yeah, I, unfortunately, I had to turn down a lot of gigs, especially these couple months uh, because the holiday season, I think everybody kind of want to have a little gathering and get together at their house, yeah. which I completely understand. However, it's just like we previously talked about is the, the whole coronavirus thing, whereas my distributor used to be able to give three to four uh, shipments from Japan every single week, whereas now they sometimes don't even get one a week. You know, so yeah. and with my my ingredients and stuff like that, I don't buy frozen products. I don't use frozen products. Everything is fresh, and a lot of the specialty order fish that I have to get, they're all from Japan. So, with that being said, it's impossible for me to really work with this at all because it comes down to the order guy too, which he tells me that that guy's terrible. He's lazy. He doesn't really want to do anything. So right. ultimately, I can't get what I need uh, because of this one person or just because of coronavirus. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we'll wrap up here because uh, a little probably keeping you a little bit longer. We got eight questions pretty much ask everybody who comes on the podcast here. So who would you say uh, the biggest influence on your career is? Uh uh, I will. I will have to say my last teacher, Mr. Huang. I think because I the way I work with him, I've only worked with him for a year and a half. But out of that year and a half, I think for a whole year, I dream about him every single night. Uh, just him yelling at me, <laughs> um, and I tell him this every single day. The very next day, I go back to work, and he always laugh. Uh, ever since I left Sushi Inn and left under his wings. Uh, I always, the first head chef gig that I had, I always felt him staring at me and mm-hmm. making sure I was doing things correctly. And I, th- there's something to say about that, to be said about that. It's just, I can't, I, nobody ever has given me that type of focus and training than him. And for, for me to be still seeing his shadows right next to me every time I do sushi, uh, I think that will have to be count as the, the, the biggest influence. What is the one item in the kitchen that you can't live without? Can't be a knife. Can't be a knife? No, can't be a knife. Everybody, oh, my, my, everybody uh, loves knives, so it's Oh, be, yeah, my, my awesome cutting, my sushi cutting board. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I, I even use that at home too, so... What's a Columbus restaurant that you'd recommend that's not your own? I mean, I know you're going up to Cleveland, but uh, I would uh, I would recommend it's not a restaurant, but it's a private dining club. I would recommend uh, Roy's Aff Supper Club, and yep. yeah, it's ran by uh, my friend Andrew Smith. Uh, yep. So yeah, everybody should definitely check him out. What's one spot in Cleveland since you're going up there? Uh, Fully in this broken down Chinatown in the middle of this broken down Chinese shopping center. It's called Fully? Uh, yeah, called Fully. Uh, okay. It is the best pho that you can find, that I found so far between Columbus and Cleveland. Okay. Yeah. Um, bucket list travel destination. I think that's probably Japan for you, right? Yeah, I kind of want to hit all Asia though. Uh, Korea, Singapore, 
Thailand, Vietnam. For some reason, I really want to go to Scotland and Ireland too. <laughs> I, I've only seen pictures and I kind of just want to, I want to visit the scenery. What's like the restaurant that you're looking, you know, most forward to for your upcoming trip to Japan there? I think it's just any, any sushi restaurants that I, I, I go. Um, I kind of want to get in with Jiro's restaurant too, but I don't, I think it's a little too late. I kind of want to see what "quote unquote" real sushi tastes like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely something that's mm-hmm. going to be pretty awesome. So, what's the craziest thing you've seen happen uh, in a restaurant while you're working? <laughs> for for oh, work for safe for work or <laughs> no? Just you're you're in you're in the restaurant you're in the kitchen and then it was just. Uh, a while. I'll it just say be, my from my personal experience. That. Yeah, yeah I, I won't throw anybody under the bus here. I'll just say what happened to me then. Uh, it was working when I was working at Sushi N under Mr. Huang. Uh, it was a Saturday night, 7 38 o'clock. We were getting super busy. I just got done with an order. I turned and I accidentally hit my knife. So my nef- knife started falling onto the floor, mm-hmm. but unfortunately it hit my leg. Uh, so it went into my thigh mm-hmm. and it fell out. Mr. Huang looked at me and asked me if I was okay. And I told him, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I, I think it was the adrenaline that was going because yeah. I was slammed. Uh, so I didn't really feel anything then. But, you know, within five minutes later, after, you know, I took the knife to back to the kitchen and I got a new knife, um, I started feeling my legs start getting wet. So. So I told Mr. Paul, I was like, hey, uh, my leg's a little wet. And I don't know why. I think I need to go check it out. So my friend, which was the owner at that time, Diana, she went to the back and I was in the back and I had to like pull my pants down so she can look at it. And ultimately, there was just a chunk of flesh missing. Mm-hmm. And what we did was uh, she just kind of kneeled down and patched me up. Uh, she put, you know, bandage around it. And I went back to work and that was it. Did you have and, to get st- stitches after? Uh, no stitches. So no. later that night, I went back home. Uh, that was when my par- both my parents were still here. Uh, they came to visit me. And so you know, I told them, hey, uh, I got this wound. I think we need to take care of it. Uh, my dad took a look at it. And so I was sitting on my computer chair while my dad was sitting on another chair. And then as soon as I pulled out my pants and I saw the wound, I guess I passed out. Because <laughs> my, my girlfriend, well, my at the time, my wife now was there too. What happened was like, I I guess I pulled out my pants and then I kind of woke up and I saw my wife crying and my dad was about to cry. (laughs) They were like, yeah, you just blacked out. We we thought you died. I was like, that would be the the weakest way to go, man. It's just like (laughs) dying from passing out. But ultimately we put a, put a like artificial, they have this thing called like AI, like artificial skin or something like that. But it's pretty amazing. So you just put the whole pad over it. And it's waterproof, and eventually it'll suck up, suck out all the bacteria, and you just change oh, okay. that every, yeah, every so often, and then it just healed up. And I, yeah, I still have a wound, I still have a scar from it, but that's about it. Right. Yeah. What's uh, what's your food or drink guilty pleasure? Can be alcohol, doesn't have to be. Oh uh, yeah, I don't drink, so there, there goes yeah, that. Mo- a lot of chefs <laughs> don't, so that's why yeah. I throw that in there. My, my guilty pleasure is eating late. I think that that's my biggest downfall uh, because as chefs, we, you know, our adrenaline is usually pumping until like 1231 o'clock. Yeah. Um, so when we get home and that's usually what, what time we eat dinner as well, you know, um, not too many chefs because when you guys are eating, we're working. So, right. you know, um, 
those pictures that everybody's been posting nowadays that a chef eating out of a pot, you know, squatting down. It's actually kind of funny because when I worked at Salt and Pine, I had a picture of that, of me. <laughs> it was just me eating straight out of the pot, sitting on a crate, you know. Um, so it, it's true. And so like even now, after almost a whole year of quarantine and just staying indoors, uh, I still have problem going to sleep early. Um, I still can't go to bed before one or two o'clock. What I told my wife is that I don't want to get used to going to bed like you do, like at nine thirty or ten o'clock. And then once and then, I work, I have to start working. Then I'm I'm not gonna have energy for that. Right. Um. But that that leads to the problem of me eating like right before I go to sleep or just snacking on things while I'm watching TV. And that's that's my biggest issue. I know if I cut that out of my life, I can lose like thirty pounds. But hey, man. Speaking to everybody right now because of coronavirus. Like <laughs> yeah, right. Does. But yeah, I mean, some people are just wired differently. Like yeah. my wife, she'll have nights when she's doing some work stuff and she can just roll till she's like, I think I work better. Like if I'm working like really late at night. Yeah, that's how I am. Uh, what's the, what's the one thing like that you've ever cooked, created like the favorite thing so far that you've ever, favorite dish that you've ever made so far? Um, I think, um, during salt and pine years, I think uh, the hamachi tataki that I did, I was really proud of that. Mm-hmm. I utilized a lot of techniques that I learned from different masters and also from self-study uh, to create that dish. The miso panzu was on point. The I remember the first time I gave that dish to Chef Andrew when we were both at salt and pine. Uh, he kind of he just he ate the whole plate and then he picked up the bowl and drank the sauce, you know. And I that that to me I almost cry also again, you know, because <laughs> to me like he's kind of like this uh, kind of more well known chef in Columbus, and for him yeah. to really appreciate the food that I make for the very first time. You know, um, that, that really, really put me in a good place. So I, I would think that dish is definitely something that I'm very proud of. Final question here. What's your favorite Anthony Bourdain episode? Could be a moment, scene from the show. You know, we do a podcast here that we just kind of rewatch. We're uh, rewatching the parts, unknown episodes and kind of right. doing a podcast with them. So what's your favorite one, uh, favorite memory? I, I think my favorite men- memory is just him as a person and as a, as a professional, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really any special moments. I mean, of course, when he visits Taiwan, you know, I, I watch the episodes many, many, many times uh, just because I'm familiar with the food and, and I enjoy it. But, you know, the, the way Anthony Bourdain approached Asian cuisines, especially with sushi, I, I feel like there's really nobody else in the United States, you know, anybody can thank them more than Anthony Bourdain to really broaden the horizon of American sushi consumers. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, him himself, you know, like sushi is his last meal, like like he always said. Uh, but at the same time, it's just, you know, like after people seeing these things and with Zero Dreams of Sushi co- documentary coming out on theaters, yeah. you know, pe- people really, really starting yeah. to understand. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the biggest thing that I really felt America was missing is really understanding and appreciation towards the craft. And Anthony Bourdain brought that to every aspect of it. It's not just Japanese food, but every type of food. Really appreciate you coming on. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Where can people find you? Uh, Social media website? Oh, it's a long one. Uh, Yeah, so uh, the Instagram account, it's Akatsuki Sushi. It is A-K-A-T-S-U-K-I. Mm-hmm. underscore sushi i would just say that would be the only one as of right now uh right. we will have 
in about a month or so, I will announce other social media platforms and other websites that you guys can find me at. Cool. Well, yeah, let me uh, let me know when you get closer and you can uh, talk about that. Love to have you come awesome. on and pitch the concept to again and appreciate your time. This was awesome. We'll do it again. Good luck with the, the restaurant in Cleveland. Thank you. Thank talking you. soon and uh, have a good new year. You, you as well, right? Thank you so much. Thanks, Kevin. Mm, bye. And that was my interview with Kevin Wang, again, chef of Akatsuki, also opening a yet-to-be-announced named restaurant in Cleveland. So we'll have more on that. Like I've kind of said, plan on getting him back on the podcast and and covering the concept and the reason and all that stuff uh, for that restaurant in Cleveland. And do plan on going up there myself and, and grabbing a meal. Once again, thank you to Kevin for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. It was cool to just be able to kind of nerd out and talk sushi for a while. It's just something that there's not a whole lot of people I feel like I can talk with about it. A lot of people think sushi is just, you know, straight raw fish. And there's a lot more art that goes into it and a lot more preparation and technique than people probably understand. So it's nice to kind of have a conversation, you know, with somebody who's on that similar wavelength. But yeah, make sure you give him a, a follow Akatsuki on Instagram. You can find them there. More details will come out about the Cleveland thing. Make sure to check out, you know, the different courses that I've had at the Sushi Pop that I went to. Those are all on his page on the Spoon Mob website. Make sure to follow along on the podcast. Subscribe to the feed. Subscribe to our Instagram. Make sure you're following along with that, too. Appreciate everybody listening, spreading the word. Getting 2021 started off right here. And there'll be more chefs coming in the future weeks. And like I said, this is something we want to continue doing right now, kind of targeting like every other week, dropping one of these might get a little bit more frequent, might eventually shift to Mondays, you know, in the summer once we kind of wrap up the restaurant reviews and stuff like that. But um, for now, it'll be Thursdays, kind of every other week or so, you know, we'll be trying to tie in kind of the Monday podcast with whatever chef uh, we're interviewing that's coming out on Thursday. So it will be kind of some teasing and, and lead in there. But like I said, appreciate everybody. I really enjoy doing this and there'll be more in the future and uh, stay safe out there. We'll talk to you guys next week.